Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. No doubt you heard last week that by the 20th anniversary of the September 11 attacks, the United States will bring to a close their military presence in Afghanistan. Australia also will follow suit and pull out its remaining 80 troops this year. There will be no victory parades, just as there was very little discussion leading up to Australia joining the US, the UK, Canada and other NATO forces deployed to southern Afghanistan in the weeks after the 9-11 attacks back in 2001. We've invited Jeff Sparrow to reflect on President Biden's announcement and Australia's role in this so-called forever war. Jeff joins us monthly or so on the show to talk all things topical in politics, society and culture. And it's uh, great to have you back on the show, Jeff. Great to be here. And uh, Scott Morrison the other day did say that it wasn't really the time to be questioning whether Australia could have done things differently in Afghanistan. Is now the time to talk about those things? So Australia has been in Afghanistan since 2001. A child was born when Asia was first launched is now well into their 20s. The war has gone on, what, five times longer than the First World War. Um, I would say it's well past time to have some discussion as to what the conflict was actually about, particularly since what this announcement effectively means is that the Taliban has won the war. So, you know, the United States has now spent something like, well, it depends which estimate you you, uh, put faith in, but something like a trillion dollars on the war in Afghanistan during a period of, you know, considerable austerity in all sorts of um, other departments. Thousands upon thousands of people have died. The country is still in ruins. And it seems almost certain that the Taliban will be back in power soon. So what was that all about? I think it's scandalous that um, there's so little discussion about this war that has dragged on for so long and is now coming to an end, and there is almost nothing in the media talking about it. Yeah, why do you think that is? Because, I mean, if we you know think back to 2001, it was incredibly heady times, um, and you know there was understandably a highly emotional and, and visceral reaction to the, you know, those planes flying into the World Trade Centre and what it meant for, for security and all that kind of thing. But, I mean, that was a, a very long time ago. So why is it, do you think, that there hasn't been really much critical reflection on the decision to go there in the first place and what we've been doing for the past 20 years? Yeah, it's a really interesting exercise to go back and read the media coverage about Australia's entry into the war in Afghanistan because what really jumps out at you is the extent to which this was presented as not some sort of, I don't know, melancholy duty or anything of that kind, but I think Piers Ackman and the Herald Sun described it as a, a struggle of good against evil, mm. and that was very much the, the not just from the right as well, uh, you know, what, what's striking in that coverage is the, the number of people who, would, who were arguing for the war on the basis that it was supposedly a feminist conflict, that it was going to be this sort of the liberation of women in, in, in Afghanistan. And that rhetoric disappeared a long, long time ago, you know, within about two or three years when it became clear that, in fact, what was happening in Afghanistan was that the United States was allying themselves with people who were 
at least as repressive as the Taliban. And, you know, the, the CIA was making huge payments to um, opium dealers and, you know, Australia was working closely with notorious human rights um, uh, abusers. But in terms of why there's been so little discussion of it now, I think it's because the serious people in the Australian political class never believed any of that stuff. Mm. You know, that was just the stuff that, you know, you let the sort of well-meaning idiots say in, 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 in the paper. But if you, if you, if you read, you know, um, military white papers and stuff, they were really clear what this war was about was that Australia's um, strategic interests require a close alliance with the United States and to facilitate that alliance, it's necessary for Australia to put itself um, on the front line in, in these kind of conflicts. And so Australia was... Uh, Australia was far more keen for Australian troops to be in Afghanistan than the Americans were. Um, you know, they, they see it as a down payment on the, um, you know, on, on the military alliance that may be in Australia's interest in the future. And that's why they don't want to talk about it now, because it's, a, it, 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 it's an incredibly cynical calculation to say that the devastation wreaked on Afghanistan over 20 years was necessary because, you know, we might need American assistance in our region at some time in the future. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, talking about it as some kind of down payment invites almost a sort of cost-benefit analysis in some ways. And, and I mean, there's been, you know, I think, what, upwards of, of 100, 150,000 Afghans who have died. I know sort of exact figures are hard to come by, but I think is it 41 Australian soldiers. Um, there's, you know, the documented, um, you know, really atrocities that um, Australian Special Forces troops are alleged to have been involved in in Afghanistan as well through the Breton Inquiry and just the damage that's been inflicted as a result on um, on Australia's Defence Forces as a result of that. So what do you think would be the sort of reflection from, I guess, those in the political class and those involved in the armed forces as well about just whether we, uh, you know, really should have um, put, put a down payment, as you say, on the US Alliance, um, given what we've seen over the past couple of decades? Yeah, so Greg Sheridan, um, who's very close to the sort of establishment on these questions, had a piece in The Australian where he basically just said, well, you know, like, we've lost the war, but it was necessary for the American alliance, and because that's so central to Australian strategic thinking, it's worth it the prices. Something along those lines. And I think, so the current... Um, bizarre culture war that's happening around the, the launch of that ship in um, in, in Sydney mm. and the, the dancers who were supposedly working outside it is very much connected to this uh, as well because, of course, the other issue that's bubbling away alongside the, the withdrawal of the Americans is the the Brereton investigation into Australia war, war crimes that you alluded to before. And I think that the there's sections of the military establishment who are very worried that there will be uh, pushback from the public um, as a result of this, and they are trying to neutralise that with this sort of rhetoric that um, Andrew Hastie came out with, that in fact the the Australian Army had become too woke and reminding people that, in fact, the key... The business of the Australian military uh, was uh, killing people. I mean, more, he said that more or less explicitly, the, the deployment of lethal force. And this is what the Australian military should concentrate on rather than any sort of, you know, humanitarian 
um, age. And this morning, um, Peter Dutton came out and um, overturned a previous decision to um, to withdraw meritorious unit citations from um, special special forces units, and saying that in fact, um, apart from those soldiers who have personally engaged in, in, in war crimes, the special forces have done a bang-up job and they should all be getting medals. So I think there's a, a bit of an internal repositioning within the, the, the political class to kind of, you know, stress the kind of hard, sharp end of the military against any kind of sentiment that, in response to these war crimes, it should be sort of pulled back or, or toned down or anything like that. Speaking with Jeff Sparrow, regular guest on The Grapevine, and this morning talking about the Biden administration's announcement that the US would pull out of Afghanistan, and Australia, of course, is following suits, um, as are a bunch of other allies. And I guess, you know, thinking about the image of the military and, and how Australians sort of relate to the military and feel about them, I mean, I think, obviously, you know, we've got a, a chequered history with Timor-Leste, but I think there'd probably be a, a large portion of people who might feel more comfortable with the sort of peacekeeping efforts um, of the Defence Force, as we saw there around sort of the, the move to independence and so on. Um, how do you think people broadly respond to these types of atrocities that have been really, you know, very much put spotlighted um, in a way that we haven't really seen for, you know, at least a very, very long time. Um, is there a real sense, do you think, among people that uh, there is sort of a, a really negative culture and, and that might lead to a questioning of our sort of um, solidarity with the United States in these wars that don't really have much of a direct relationship with Australia? Yeah, so I, again, I think there's, there's, there's a, a clear campaign going on within the Liberal Party and, you know, within the military culture to ensure that um, this doesn't happen. So <laughs> the hasty comments about um, the, uh, the the military being too woke, what that was partly about was about a, a directive in 2018 that banned soldiers from wearing death symbols. <laughs> so, 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 you know, the Special Forces, soldiers were wearing, you know, skulls and crossbones and, and and so on, and there were people in the military establishment who were concerned that this was accentuating the culture of atrocity and human rights abuses, which clearly it was. Um, and now we have a senior government figure saying, oh, that's just political correctness gone mad, you know, it's, you know, there's nothing wrong with soldiers, you know, draping themselves in, in skulls and crossbones. Um, and so I think that Actually, there's going to be a systematic to minimise um, the fallout from the Brereton report and whatever prosecutions come out of it to, 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 you know, if a couple of soldiers have to take the fall for it, they'll be portrayed as, you know, a few rotten apples, you know, instead of... Instead of a broader analysis that, say, that that says, well, when you occupy a country for 20 years, this is what inevitably happens. It happens in every occupation. You cannot maintain a military force in a country that doesn't want you to be there without doing all sorts of unspeakable things. And that culture of atrocity pervades all the way through the organisation. It, it, it's carcinogenic because... You know, it's clear when you, when you read that report that everyone knew what was going on, you know, that people were maybe turning a blind eye to it or not wanting to be involved or whatever, but this wasn't 
isolated instances, this was an incredibly brutal war in which, um, you know, the occupying forces were doing on a regular basis horrific things that they saw as necessary to maintain that occupation. And, you know, my, my concern is that without there being... Um, Forces in Australian society that really making the argument about um, this inquiry, what it found out, and dragging these things into the light of day, my concern is that nothing will be learned from this. And in fact, you know, the, the, the ensuing um, prosecutions will be carried on largely in secret and, you know, will be peripheral to the mainstream debate and, you know, Nothing will be learned from it um, at all. I mean, it's kind of clear, isn't it, that, that there's the um, the former Fairfax papers are really um, pushing through investigation and doing a, a, a great mm. job, but it's not exactly being um, uh, it's not exactly being placed in the forefront of sort of parliamentary debate by any politicians because you know both sides of of politics very much see associations with the military as a vote winner and don't want to be seen as being sort of anti-military. And so I'm, I'm very concerned that what will simply happen is that there will be, you know, a few scapegoats elected who will take blame and then the whole thing will be buried, which is another reason why I think it's really important to insist that, well, you know, we've had a war that's lasted for um, 20 years. We need to talk about it. Mm. <laughs> it's so what, what is it to learn about this? Yeah, and I mean, even across the sort of media commentary, there's been some referring to, you know, just a, a few bad eggs. And, you know, while, of course, not everyone participated in the types of atrocities that we've seen through um, to the reporting of people like um, like Nick McKenzie and, and his colleagues and through the Brereton Inquiry, it's clear that there were, you know, a good number of people who were committing those things. And you would think that a broader conversation about the context that led to that would be worthwhile. Um, but just sort of in the... In the final few minutes we've got you Jeff I mean if we can sort of cast our eye wider for a moment um, what are your thoughts more broadly on the Biden administration announcing the withdrawal at this point in time I mean did you think this was sort of a you know to be expected obviously Trump flagged that this was going to be a reality but what does it mean for sort of a America's broader geopolitical strategy and and what Australia's um, what implications there might be I suppose for Australia going forward given that shift but that's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because here we have um, a withdrawal, which I think has to be seen as essentially a military defeat for the United States. And in the context where I think the preeminent question in the world today is the, the intensifying rivalry between the United States and China, how this will play out, I think is going to be a really significant um question because of course you know an awful lot of um american foreign policy over the last decades has been shaped by you know what people describe as the vietnam syndrome the attempt to overcome the perception that america declining power well this having to retreat fairly ignominiously from afghanistan also creates this sense of the united states as a declining that, which was something that you know Biden would be very keen to try to overcome, but one would be you'd be a little bit surprised if it didn't embolden some of the hardliners with 
and a Chinese regime to say that, like, well, you know, America is a paper tiger, as the Maoists used to say, you know, that it's... Um, and so, yeah, I think there are really interesting times ahead. It's quite an unstable world situation now, and that will have um, implications for Australia. Yeah. Well, um, on that cheery note, uh, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Always great to, to have your insights and to have you back on Triple R and, um, and, yeah, really value um, everything you've provided this morning and other times throughout the, um, the year so far. I look forward to having you back on in about a month. John. Thanks, Jeff. Cheers. Jeff Sparrow there, columnist with Guardian Australia and uh, long-time Triple R broadcaster. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Over 36,000 Australians are stranded abroad as a result of COVID-19 border closures. And with a patchy quarantine system and delays in the vaccine rollout, it's difficult to know when and how many of them will be able to travel home. Some of those affected have taken their case to the UN Human Rights Committee, alleging the Australian government has breached international law in preventing their return. Of course, a large part of Australia's success in minimising death and illness from the coronavirus has been due to its restrictions on international arrivals. But as we move beyond a year since border closures were imposed, there are growing concerns about the plight of those stuck overseas. Liz Hicks is a PhD candidate at Melbourne Law School. She's put together a policy brief on this issue and joins us today on the line. Great to have you back on the show, Liz. Thanks for having me back, Dylan. And so, first up, why are so many Australians still stranded overseas? So the reason citizens and residents are struggling to come home, even though they're allowed, is because Australia has capped the number of people who can arrive each week, and those caps are far below demand. So in addition to the hundreds of thousands of Australians who are currently abroad, that figure is far higher than the number registered with DFAT that you've just stated. People are also continuing to leave on essential, for essential reasons, say where an elderly parent overseas has had a stroke, um, perhaps they've been offered a job, and that number of people leaving Australia on essential exemptions is actually only slightly lower than the cap for people to come back in. Australia's now opened a travel bubble with New Zealand and the Australian Border Force have made it clear that they know Australians can leave from New Zealand and travel onward and they won't be stopping them. So the crisis is actually likely to escalate in the coming months. The other main reason that Australians are struggling to come home is that Australia isn't prioritising its citizens and its residents within that cap system and it hasn't established any kind of booking system or queue. So citizens and residents are effectively having to bid against people arriving on um, business and innovation visas, for example. So in February, for example, this year, only 44% of people arriving in Australia were actually citizens. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, sort of drilling down on, on that for a moment, I mean, to what extent is the government um, sort of, you know, providing spaces for, you know, so-called economic cohorts, people, you know, coming into the country for, um, for work reasons and that sort of thing, um, as opposed to Australian citizens who obviously have a, you know, a great desire to come back home but don't necessarily fit that bill of, um, of you know, contributing to an industry that the government might see as very much in need of, of workers and stimulus? So there's a couple of things here. You've really highlighted the problem with not taking 
a rights-based approach. And at the moment, when Australia and Australian governments, both at federal and state level, so we can come back to that if you like, mm. are making these decisions about how they get people in, they're not necessarily prioritising that human right, so the human right to come home, and also if you need to leave for an essential reason. So they're taking in other concerns. And we've seen that, obviously, with Victoria that, you know, brought in 1,200 tennis players about the same time that it floated the idea of slashing the number of arrivals for compassionate cases. Um, part of the reason is because Australia is adopting or it's relying on market mechanisms to fill those places. So it's leaving the decision about who comes to airlines. So airlines don't have a lot of sympathy for them, but in their defence, some airlines have actually really struggled to continue operating to Australia because they're flying in with as little as 30 or 35 people because of the cap. To make sure it's viable for them to fly, they bump most. They bump from the lowest price tickets first. So if you're, say, a businessman or someone with um, more financial means, you will be at the top of the list, whereas, say, an Australian citizen, maybe someone who's been struggling to get home since before the pandemic, a uh, 21-year-old who's been who went on a work experience here in England, or maybe someone who just went to see an elderly parent who was dying and had to go to a funeral, they are not going to be able to bid against um, some of those those other arrivals that have better, better means. So there's no kind of priority within that for citizens ahead of other market market contributors. Yeah, it, it sort of touches on one of the, the common points of tension, I suppose, you know, over the past year or so relating to, you know, the balance between sort of civil liberties um, in relation to individual rights and also, you know, contributing yeah. to the greater good so that we can't just sort of open up the floodgates because then we expose ourselves to risk of, you know, great community transition and a lot of people would be, you know, quite um, sort of happy with the way that we have broadly sort of managed the, the, the pandemic relatively well, at least with in our borders, despite the you know um, well well reported problems with hotel quarantine, but to, where do you kind of see the balance here? Because obviously it's it's not a good thing that so many um, Australians are still stranded over, overseas, but there's presumably some concern about whether if we do sort of you know drastically increase the number of, of flights coming in and don't have have the capacity within our quarantine um, our facilities, then that sort of exposes us to risk as well. Yep. So I think there's a couple of things here. One, it's really interesting how that you frame that problem there, and I think that cuts to the heart to the way of um, most Australians actually see this problem, the way that governments have framed the problem and governments have benefited, benefited from the fact that the public has bought it. If you look further abroad from Australia, so to our direct neighbours, New Zealand, to Taiwan, to Singapore, even to Hong Kong, you'll see that many other countries have actually had a better run of the pandemic than we have. They've handled COVID better. They never had the second wave that Victoria had, mm. which was largely driven with problems of design. And they have managed to bring far more people home than Australia. So New Zealand brings double the amount of people that Australia does relative to its population. Taiwan, it's about three times as many. And part of the way is that, part of the problem is that I think Australians, many Australians see protecting public health and facilitating essential travel. So if you have an elderly parent abroad, I imagine that you feel very differently about this issue than, say, an Australian whose family and world is entirely within Australia. But many Australians see protecting public health and that kind of common good, better, the, the good of the collective, as a mutually exclusive goal to facilitating essential travel. And part of the problem here is, as well, um, Australia is very focused on the West. 
So mm. we've been looking at what's happening in the UK, which is horrible, the EU, um, the US, where there haven't been adequate um, restrictions on movement. And whenever problems are kind of raised here, you can almost see the government response, which is whenever there's a question about proportionality, well, the UK, well, well, Taiwan, well, Singapore, Australia hasn't paid enough attention to other countries within our kind of zero COVID community that have managed to do this much better. It's a really interesting point, I think, too, and and the sort of the, the leverage the government might seek to have when drawing attention to countries like the UK, like the US, um, yeah. which might sort of excuse some of the problems that we have encountered here, as you say, and, and particularly at the moment with um, with the vaccine rollout. But on, I suppose, the matter of quarantine and, and the space that we have in our current quarantine facilities, I mean, we know that hotel quarantine has been found wanting for, for a whole variety of yeah. reasons relating to, um, you know, the, the private contracting of security and, and the, the ventilation in those facilities as well. But, uh, I mean, do you imagine that there could be um, a viable way of kind of more quickly increasing our quarantine cap in a way that's, you know, similar, I suppose, to the Howard Springs facility, which um, has much less risk of transmission given the way that that's, that's set up? Definitely, and I think it's promising that Victoria is building, uh, looking at building these facilities in Avalon. I'm a little bit concerned that we haven't learned from the lessons around um, contracting out to private security guards. I know that it looks like we're going to go in a private-public partnership there with Linfox. But mm. anyway, the problem with those facilities, though, they're a great idea and we need to rapidly invest in upscaling them, but they're going to take many months to build and we have a problem right now. I know that a lot of the problems that we've had with our hotel quarantine program have actually been called out for months. They've been, if, you, if you're on Twitter, if you read what the Australian Medical Association puts out, doctors have been screaming out for months about the problems with airborne transmission and they've just completely been ignored. Mm. So that's one of the reasons we've had to actually just keep halving the caps. And if there is a problem now with our system, if it really is impossible right now, this week, to get people home, then the places that we have have to go to citizens. We need to stop having tennis players coming. We need to stop giving those places to people other than the absolute priority, which needs to be those whose rights have been affected. And that's not just citizens, that's also residents. Yeah. Speaking with Liz Hicks, a PhD candidate at Melbourne Law School, all about the repatriation of Australians overseas and the fact that there are still upwards of 36,000 Australians who are unable to get home as it currently stands, um, relating to border closures, of course. And, I mean, looking at the, the sort of rights-based focus of this um, in relation to those who have made a um, you know representation to the United Nations, I mean, where do you imagine that might go? And, I mean, is there a really solid argument for people's rights sort of being not, not considered and, and, and not prioritised in the way that Australia has managed this process? And, and what might come from the UN kind of calling out Australia, given that we haven't necessarily, um, you know, listened to the yeah. UN in the past? So um, I actually think there's a really strong argument that Australia hasn't done enough purely by the fact that of all the zero COVID nations, we take the lowest. We are also the only country within that set or one of the only countries that stops people leaving. And that is a pretty extraordinarily um, extraordinary burden on, on a really fundamental right. Um, so in terms of what will happen, uh, the UN will consider things like the proportionality of the response, and that won't be a, the kind of politically driven proportionality assessment you see that's been conducted by governments now. I should also note that one of the factors that governments, and they've been very transparent about this, 
take into account when they're assessing the design of these systems is public perception. So mm. in the inquiry into design flaws in the Victorian program, um, Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton stated that there was some of the decisions being driven by the public need to see that the government was responding in a strong way. This isn't really the kind of factor that a rights-based assessment, such as what the UN um, Human Rights Committee will consider, that won't fall within that. So they'll look to see whether there are less intrusive means, um, whether Australia is devoting adequate resources. So that will call into your questions, such as has Australia considered whether an electronically um, monitored system of home quarantine is viable? Have they considered have they considered um, investing in in, sca- in in scaling up facilities like Howard Springs? So it'll consider those factors. But in terms of what will happen, the and any kind of outcome is a long way away. So Australia has six months to respond to the complaint because of COVID. I believe it's actually been put out to eight months. So we won't even get a response from from Australia for another eight months, and a resolution is then likely in perhaps a year. And as you say, Australia has this terrible track record, ironically, um, around issues of locking people up and locking people out with obviously our treatment of people seeking asylum, with incarceration of First Nations people. We tend to disregard that where policy is popular. So while I'm not confident that Australia may um, change its mind just because of the the UN ruling, um, it will increase pressure and awareness. Yeah, and and given that you know we know national cabinet is meeting more frequently, I think twice a week now. Um, and I mean, the vaccine isn't going to be the, the silver bullet that we might have um, hoped yeah. it, it would be. I mean, international borders aren't going to um, suddenly, you know, we're not going to go back yeah. to international travel anytime, particularly soon. Do you think that these types of issues that you outline very well in this policy brief around increasing the cap for for, for quarantine and, and having proper quarantine facilities and and some of those other th- things you've mentioned as well will be seriously considered given that you know the future still looks quite uncertain in terms of when we'll have um you know sort of flights operating at um sort of a a normal um a normal rate as we saw before the pandemic so obviously national cabinet meeting twice a week is a huge opportunity to to look at these issues um i am quite worried partly for um, like the way you've said it, Australia, the government, but also the public, has tended to see vaccinations as a silver bullet for all our problems, particularly the issue of facilitating essential travel in and out, repatriating systems. The issue, the question of how we get people home, how we get people out who need to and how we get them back, that should never have been coupled with the issue of vaccination. Mm. A year ago, we didn't even know whether there'd be a vaccine, so why weren't we investing in systems then? But second best time is always now. So this is really a point in time when National Cabinet needs to prioritise this as a separate issue to just ironing out the problems with the vaccination rollout. We have no idea when that will be. We can't control those supply chains. So let's get people home now and let's get systems in place that can get people home at scale, regardless of what happens over the next 12 to 24 months. Yeah, such an important issue, one we're going to be considering for some time to come, it seems. But um, but let's hope some of those 36,000-plus Australians can start to return sooner rather than, le- than later in one way or another. It's um, been great having you on the show again, Liz, and uh, thanks so much for your insights. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks for having me back. Liz Hicks there, PhD candidate at Melbourne Law School. And as mentioned, she has put together a highly readable uh, policy brief on the repatriation policy of Australians stranded overseas and um, provides a number of recommendations as well, um, which Liz canvassed in that interview. 
You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You might not think there's much connecting the history of the Andalusian region in southern Spain and southwest Queensland, but my next guest has drawn out these connections in a manner that is at once chilling, thought-provoking and profoundly beautiful. In his new book, Amnesia Road, Landscape, Violence and Memory, cultural historian Luke Stegman explores and contrasts the lingering effects of historic violence in these two regions. He finds commonality in forgetting of those who died through dispassion and revolution. Uh, the book, as I said, is called Amnesia Road. It's out through New South Books. And to talk all about it, Luke joins me on the line. Great to have you on Triple R, Luke. Morning, Dylan. Lovely to be here. It's a really curious approach you've taken in this book, as I say, kind of drawing out the commonalities between two regions that aren't often spoken together. Why was this worth doing? Yeah, look, a number of people have asked me about that, and it's it's important to, to state that the, the countries weren't sort of chosen randomly. Um, I've spent a lot of my adult life in Spain, uh, living and working there and studying, studying Spanish culture and history, and, uh, of course, I'm Australian as well, and so... The two countries that kind of divide my life, and and I've been interested in these historical parallels probably since there's a, there was a period, an interesting period around 2007, 2008, where within about three months you had the in, in the uh, Spanish Parliament, the then socialist government passed of what was called the Law of Historic Memory, which was a law designed to overturn the uh, the rulings of the Francoist military courts and also to um, provide funding to uncover all the mass graves, which were still all over the country, uh, had been there for the 40 or 50 years since the end of the Civil War. Only about three months after that, uh, Rudd was up in the Australian Parliament giving the uh, the apology to mm. the stolen generations. And I thought it's this is a really interesting time where it happens that the two countries where I'm most invested are both doing these very close examinations of of their past. Of course, there are differences, but I've, I've always been interested in that similarity, and this book, I guess, has gone in and explored that in a bit more detail. Yeah, and I'm interested in, in sort of your approach as a cultural historian in this as well, because you kind of draw in um, observations and, and, um, and sort of interviews and interactions, I suppose, with people across the landscape. Um, you know, there's mm. one, one bloke called Les in sort of Outback Australia who, you know, you, you tell just almost like a, a snippet in, in a day of, of your conversation with him, and it's similar, the approach you take when talking about Andalusia as well. I wonder, um, why did you choose that approach to exploring some of the commonalities in this reckoning with history that, as you say, both countries have been, I suppose, particularly engaged in in recent times, but, um, but you know, have a very long um, uh, sort of challenge of, of properly accounting for, for these violent histories? I think if you go to the case of Les, uh, who was a, a truck driver who I met quite randomly, when I, I pulled over on the side of a highway to find... Uh, to have a look at some um, Aboriginal uh, rock wells. And and uh, it, at first I couldn't find them. Uh, and then, uh, you know, they were right by the very edge of the highway. And that made me realise it was probably by sheer luck that these have been preserved rather than good planning. Um, but, I, but I found them and, and um, there was another fellow there, this, this guy who introduced himself as Les, and, and he started talking about them and was fiercely defending them as, as a cultural artefact in Australia. And I... 
And I found that interesting because uh, it sort of showed up. One thing that I that, that I talk about throughout the book is that you know, without, without wanting to sound like a, a sort of a too sensitive Queenslander, you do get a lot of kind of portrayal of redneck Queenslanders in the Australian media, and it's surprising when you go out into the into the Western districts. First of all, how many people are deeply engaged with Indigenous heritage, and and how well a lot of uh, Australians of European background and Indigenous background are getting on together, um, and they're kind of doing it well beyond the debates that are going on in the metropolitan areas. So that that really interested me. That was almost like a really down to earth, very practical form of of reconciliation. And things are not perfect, of course not. Uh, but yeah, that was that was the case of of Les. I wanted to bring in some of the just the quite ordinary people uh, who were involved because someone like Les is someone who is sort of completely anonymous and, and forgotten. And of course, the victims uh, in both countries have been anonymized and forgotten as well. Yeah, and it, it speaks as well to um, to this challenge, I suppose, with any historical or any exercise, I suppose, in in collating history is that you know essentially the entirety of the past is really um, sort of unknowable, and that was the, the great sense I got from your book that it's it's quite difficult to um, you know there's a selectivity involved, I suppose, in deciding which which people, which um, which artifacts, um, you know, which stories are told and, and packaged up as a broader narrative that we use to define ourselves, our nation, or whatever other kind of identity we might cling to. How do you sort of reflect on on the role of, of history and how we can sort of work through some of these very difficult and, you know, in many cases traumatic experiences of, of violence if we think about the frontier wars in Australia and, and the civil war in Spain in a way that can sort of account for that messiness and, and that trauma while also um, acknowledging the diversity of experience within that? Yeah, I think it's um, you know, well. That, that's a very that's a big question, uh, Dylan. But but uh, just brief, briefly, um, I'd say that in both countries, unfortunately, and this is another reason why I wrote the book. I've seen that the things, the positions, become more and more polarised over the last decade or so, um, without sort of necessarily necessarily repeating history wars. But what? One of the things that the the law of historic memory has done in Spain, and, and a lot greater consciousness of the mass graves and so on, is it rather than uh, serve to finally bury the past in, in a dignified way, it's actually just brought it all back up to the surface again, both literally and metaphorically, and it's led to a great amount of polarising. So this is why I ask myself, without being able to provide the answer, um, you know what. What good is served by raising the dead? It's a very, very tricky thing because it doesn't always have the consequences that you think it might have. Um, revealing historical truths uh, is not always a kind of cathartic process. It can be a very traumatic process for people uh, to find out things that they had no idea of. Uh, and so uh, I think it's it's important to look for people, whether they be you know historians or writers, commentators, whoever, who are trying to avoid excessive polarisation and are trying to understand. I talk about, uh, towards the end of the book, I quote a, a Basque um, cultural commentator and novelist and essayist called Edurne Portela, and she's written some marvellous stuff um, over the last decade or so about the Basque conflict. So which is this is a very raw wound still in Spain today because, you know, there were 800 people killed over the last three decades in terrorist activities. 
And she says, you know, the first and hardest step is to acknowledge that people on both sides suffer. And what I've been at pains to point out again and again in the book is that does not mean that you're saying that quantitatively the same number of people suffered. In fact, as I say, pointedly, the statistics add up and they're very damning when you look at uh, the number of Indigenous people killed, for example, or the number of settlers, or the number of people uh, of Republican sympathies versus those of fascist sympathies. And the numbers are very, very clear on one side or the other. But at some point you have to take into account with compassion that mm, people on both sides suffer. And even people who are very evil, if we don't have any sympathy for them, but their families also suffer for what, whether it be their children or their mothers or their brothers, sisters, and so on. There's always suffering around any kind of violence. And even though it might be, you might take strongly take an opposing position to that, nevertheless, it's about understanding that, that, that the human suffering that goes on all around. So that's, that's, that's partly to answer that question. Sorry, it was a fairly complex question. It, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Answer in a minute or two. Absolutely. I'm speaking with Luke Stegman, cultural historian and Hispanist, all about his book Amnesia Road, Landscape, Violence and Memory, which is out now through New South Books. And um, I wonder if you can describe some of the... the the landscape, both in um, in Andalusia in Spain and in southwest Queensland, which uh, you know is a place I haven't really spent any time in, and, and many Australians wouldn't have. Um, what do they look and, and feel like these two places? Oh, well, well, so starting with southwest Queensland first, which I guess is the area I know better. Um, it's uh, it, you're right. It's a, it's this, this this vast sort of corner of Queensland, which is very much ignored and forgotten. I find people, I mean, in a sense, if you're crossing that area, there's really only one place you might be going to, which is Birdsville. Um, and people go out there for a couple of specific reasons, and that's it. But you find very often people won't go in terms of tourism. They won't go to places like Kunnamulla or Charnival or Quilpie. It's a kind of lost pocket of, of Australia. But it contains these most beautiful landscapes of the Mulga, the Mulga scrub and the, and the Orange Plains, beautiful, magnificent bird life, wildlife, and there's a real sense there of... It's, it, you can almost reach and feel that it's not that long ago that there was a thriving Indigenous culture there. It's something that you probably don't feel when you're in a more you know, metropolitan environment, but out there you can almost... Cause there are landscapes which are still relatively untouched, and they are so exquisitely beautiful. And I wanted to describe in those in detail the, the plant life, the colours uh, in the soil and the in the sky at different times of the day, the rivers, these beautiful rivers. There's, there's one or two rivers in outback Queensland, which are some of the only rivers in Australia which are not dammed, and so they still you know, flow their natural course. Um, so I wanted to bring that, that area to attention because, of course, finding that it was neglected from, a, if you like, a touristic point of view, of course, it's also been vastly neglected from a historical point of view in terms of, okay, who has done research into what happened to the Indigenous peoples out here? And I drew on some some works of research that came before me, but there was very little, which, you know, was, was again, one of the reasons for doing the work. And in Andalusia, it's, it's interesting, um, southern Spain has this reputation of this kind of um, folklore, beautiful folkloric playground of beaches and, and olive groves and, and, you know, guitars and, and so on and so forth. And, and it, yes, it has all those things. Um, but it also has, you, you go to these quite, Astonishing cities like Seville and Cordoba and Granada um, with, with these th 
thousands of years of history of Christian, Islamic, Roman history. And yet, <clears throat> while that's readily sold by the Spanish tourist office as a, as, as a playground, that's one of the one of the number one tourist destinations for, for Europeans, it, there is just below the surface, there's this terrible violence which occurred right across Andalusia only 80-odd years ago. And it's just not really visible anywhere. You can find it if you go looking for it specifically and speak to local people, such as I did. But it's very much hidden from the tourist view, uh, and it, it's hidden from most contemporary people's view as well. So beyond and below these two beautiful landscapes, which I wanted to celebrate, because one of this was one of the queries that I had in my head as I was writing the book, is how do you write about such violence and such trauma mm. which happens in such beautiful landscapes? Um, and I guess that's just one of the paradoxes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, you mm. know, that comes through very strongly in the book and your evo- evocative descriptions of the landscapes that you move through. Um, just finally, because I know we, we've got to let you go very shortly, but there's a deceptively simple question early on in this book that, um, that I've been kind of dwelling mm. on for quite a while since. Um, where did the present come from? And I wonder why you think that's a valuable question to be asking and, and sort of how it informed your approach in this book and, and the broader work that you do. Well, I think um, it, it's interesting. A lot of people have picked up, well, a lot. I mean, a number of people have picked up on that question. Mm. And, and it seemed to me it, it, it was just something very simple that popped into my head one day. Where did the present come from? Because I think that essentially speaks to what anyone involved in history is doing is saying, I mean, that's that old question of why are things like they are and why are things like they are now? Uh, so how do we get to this point? And, uh, and I think then you, you sort of start to pull the threads on that uh, and, and you slowly, I think a story unspools from there. Um, you know, people often don't spend very much time thinking about precisely where did the present come from, but the present came from a very, very, very long story. And uh, and there's a lot of wonderful things and a lot of terrible things in that story. And this is about going back and looking at some of them and trying to uh, illuminate a little bit of, well, things are like this now because this is the path we've walked before. Yeah. Well, you've done this in an incredibly uh, arresting and, and captivating way in this book. Um, it is called Amnesia Road, Thank Landscape, Violence and Memory. Big congratulations and, um, and thanks so much for spending some time with us today on Triple R. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Dylan. Absolute pleasure. Luke Stegman there, cultural historian. And um, unfortunately, there's so much more to unpack in that extraordinary book, but I do commend it to people. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.